Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 10, Dave Windorf, a monster magnet. Um, I recorded this interview about nine, well, 11, nine years ago, nine years ago, 2004, when I was living in Southern California. I uh, had moved out there with a job that I had started here working for some record label and uh, drove across country and the record label and I and a band were sharing a practice space, well, sharing a warehouse uh, and the band was using the warehouse as a practice space and the record label was using it as an office and I was using it as a domicile. This warehouse was in a... um, like an industrial park that uh, you weren't supposed to live in. And there were maybe uh, 10 units in there. A couple of them, a couple other people were living there. There was a guy that made cellos. And there was a kid that had a recording studio. A bunch of people that worked on motorcycles. And actually, speaking of motorcycles, there was a motorcycle club that uh, was set up there. And uh, I mention this because I was trying to record this interview with a handheld tape recorder over uh, telephone. It's a telephone interview. It's uh, playing through the speaker of the telephone. And I have the tape recorder set up, and I'm talking to the telephone. And Dave Windorf is coming through the telephone, and it's all voice-activated, the speakerphone. And about halfway through it, the band decided to start practicing and was cutting out the speaker so I couldn't Dave Windorf wouldn't come through the phone anymore tried to deal with it and uh, picked up the phone and so we lose there's a couple places where the interview drops out but I'm leaving it there for narrative purposes for the verite um, of it all uh, it's pretty interesting to listen to this interview because I was having the conversation with him not thinking like that any that so much of it was going to be going into print I was doing the interview for a publication out there called Varla and Varla didn't really it was kind of a girly tattoo Betty Page girl pinup magazine had the occasional article about music in it a friend of mine out there had connections, and he wa- he liked Monster Magnet. He wanted somebody to interview them, and I jumped at the chance because I got free tickets to go see him. thought I was going to get to meet him, but guys like that only like to do phoners. So um, I was out there working for the record label, but I was getting a chance to do a little rock journalism while I was there. And um, so this, this interview, I knew I was going to listen to it I was going to have it. I was going to talk to Dave Windorf about all these things I've always wanted to talk to him about. And ask questions that I always wanted to ask, but I didn't think that much of it was going to make it into a thousand, fifteen hundred word interview. So um, I knew I was going to be editing it down. And, and excerpts from this interview appeared in print in Varla in 2004 out there in L.A. Um, I don't think the magazine is still publishing anymore, but because I tried to look it up and... It looks like the last time they put one out was in 2012. But anyway, it was a good it was a good in for me. I ended up getting an interview, uh, Josh Homme, too, while I was out there for that same magazine. And I stiffed him on the interview. I moved back to Richmond before I gave it to him. I ended up in RVA magazine, actually. 
back in 2005. I think they printed the Homie, the Hami interview. But um, yeah, this uh, this whole Southern California thing, it's a you know, it's a blast from the past to go back and think about that time period because I went out there um, really not knowing what I was getting into. Um, I didn't know what it was going to be like to live in a warehouse where I built. Um, my bedroom on top of a practice space that was being built inside of a warehouse and have to live sort of in a fishbowl with, you know, all of the the band having all this access to me in my life and the business having all this access to me in my life. It was like living in a cage at the zoo or something. And I didn't, the, uh, I didn't psychologically handle the stress very well. And um, plus the fucking nimrods that were in the punk scene in Southern California. I mean, they're just the kind of ludicrous jokers that dress up in the full fucking costume, you know? Like, the they dress right out of the pages of punk rock history, full fucking uniform, you know, people in their 30s and 40s with their hair all dyed up, spiked up every goddamn day, wearing, like, shit that... I mean, you'd really basically have to be wealthy to afford all of this gear these people were dressed in all the time, and... Um, I was pretty judgmental about that. I thought it was all pretty bogus. And, uh, plus they thought, I guess they thought I was kind of bogus too with my uh, proclivities towards stoner rock and various other kinds of rock and roll that they didn't approve of. And they were able to rifle through my records and all my shit and mock me for it, which I didn't enjoy. I got a little sympathy from Dave about that, but, uh, you don't get to hear that in the interview. We, it's one of those periods where it's kind of off. <laughs> I actually bitched to Dave Windorf about my roommates. Um, but, uh, you know, the being the new kid in town and, like, having this responsibility to be trying to promote one of the bands on the label that's, like, looking over my shoulder at everything I did and um, really not being that much of a Southern California guy, not a surfer, none of those things. I don't know what the hell I was doing there, but it really... Uh, it was a bitch. Plus, I, uh, you know, I was leaning on the substances, trying to get get a break from it and have some fun. Ironically, I mean, compared to Orange County, Southern California, around Newport Beach and Costa Mesa, Huntington Beach, L.A. is like sophisticated, and they're cool. You know, it's in comparison. It's a it was a mecca. It was a it was a oasis. I got up there as often as I could, and. uh also went over to Long Beach a lot because Long Beach was a little more down to earth, a little more blue collar. But it was crazy. I mean, I, and I was just, I got pretty isolated uh, living in that warehouse and um, I didn't even have a shower in there. I had to like, I had a gym membership and that was where I did my toilet. I just lived in this in this space in Southern California. It was actually, you know, I don't, at the time it was pretty torturous. When I came back to Richmond, I had borderline like, PTSD from the whole affair, but looking back on it, it was a hell of an adventure. Um, I got to realize some fantasies, uh, such as owning a 1977 Dodge uh, B100 surfer van with the full wood paneling and the carpeting and all of that stuff. You know, I, I thought that would be super cool to be driving around Southern California and something like that. And when I went up to L.A. in it, people thought it was pretty cool. But when I drove around Southern California in it, people asked me questions like, who's tied up in the back of that thing? Um, it was associated with meth heads from Riverside, which is like the just the most redneck, white trash, shitty part of 
Southern California that I knew about in Orange County. At least that was what they told me. I went down there once or twice, and it's just a real depressed place, I guess. But um, I was, uh, was thinking about an anecdote today of when I was taken, when I was going to move back to Richmond, um, a friend of mine from Richmond, Will Sikowski, uh, was buying and selling automobiles in L.A., and he let me store my van in his lot while I... Uh, while I came, you know, flew back and everything. And this kid that I had met, who was actually from Riverside, uh, who would hang around the motorcycle guys at the, in the um, shopping, I mean, in the, fuck, the industrial park, he uh, agreed to follow me to L.A. so I could have a ride back. Um, And it was him and his little daughter, who was probably about four years old or something like that. And we stopped off uh, at the gas station before going to L.A., because I was going to um, fill both of our vehicles up with gas, mainly his, because he's having to do this you know, 60-mile trip just for me. And we didn't really know each other that well. We'd only kind of hung out together and partied a few times. The, the biggest impression I think I made on them is being a drunk. I went down to their place in Riverside and ended up getting trapped. Well, anyway, that's another story. Anyway, while the guy was out at the gas pump, I come in out of this van, you know, this van with no windows on the sides and everything, and I walk into the gas station with my little aviator shades on, and I've got the guy's little daughter with me, the little um, four- or five-year-old girl that does is obviously not my daughter. He's, like, Mexican. The girl is Mexican, and here's me, big-ass six-foot-four, scruffy white dude, just got out of a rape van and walking a five-year-old into the gas station. We're in there, and, like, looking around i'm buying some coffee and uh she says where's my daddy i want my daddy and i said he'll be here soon honey and i looked up and all the people in line were looking at me with their phones out like they were gonna have to be texting a description of a kidnapper or something like that yeah, so that kind of, in a lot of ways, characterizes the reality versus my fantasy about living in southern california but It was really cool getting to talk to Dave Windorf, and this interview is awesome. I mean, we we really, uh, it's not, you know, you got to hear him kind of garbled through the speakerphone of a phone, but we talked about a lot of cool stuff, and right when I thought it was going to end, I said, okay, thanks for talking to me, man. Are you going to vote? And and this was like maybe a week before the elections in 2004, Kerry and Bush, and we got into this whole conversation about... um, Bush and Kerry and all of this stuff and it's pretty novel to hear Dave Windorf talking politics I'm sure you'll agree so uh yeah try to get through the little dead spaces they're brief whatever they don't last that long and it's worth it oh let's go can you hear me good good so how's it going and we've been on the month on the road for like five months now so it's like an absolute insane Planes, trains, and automobiles kind of, you know, we started off in Europe the way we usually do. When I, I saw you guys at the Troubadour in L.A., how, how far into it was that? About month number, yeah, about month number four into five. That was a really great show. I was I was really impressed with the uh, the the good vibes and energy coming coming off that stage. Right, man. Well, you know, that's what's on. It's the best time I have all day. You know what I mean? Um, that is playing cowboys and Indians. Yeah. It has changed, you know, it's like it's um the same feeling I got doing that. It's like the same feeling I got when I sat on my bed. 
with headphones on listening to like Black Sabbath and Iggy Stooges records. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I've, I've, I've always gonna. I mean, I've been a fan of, of Monster Magnet. I guess since uh, I guess '95. And I've got kind of spotty understanding of the evolution of, of what you were trying to pull together. Stooges here, Hawkwind there. I know you were in a punk band before that called Shrapnel. Could you give me a little idea of how that, you know, sort of grew? Sure. You know what happened was when I was a little kid, like, you know, like under 10, mm-hmm. my older brother was upstairs in the attic room above me just pumping out MC5 Stooges, ultimate spinach, you know, fire butterfly, all this stuff. Um, Hawkwind and all this prog rock uh, and the, you know, stuff from the late 60s and mid, mid, early 70s to mid 70s um, and I heard all that stuff and I knew what it was I didn't particularly realize I liked it as much as I did so by the time it got for me just you know stand up the plate and take a swing it was punk rock it was all about CBGs punk rock and, that's, and what, when was this exactly? This was, uh, well, Shrapnel was like 78. Right on. Yeah, so it was like 78. Right there, so yeah, pretty decent pedigree with the punk rock there, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was like second wave. You know, it was like, this is like, Shrapnel was playing CBGBs when the Dead Boys hit CBGBs, and that's like the second wave. That's right after Ramones and all that stuff, like, kind of left. Yeah. You know, left to, to, to go out across the world. Lucky enough, I was like, we were like in on that too because you know we were going to concerts as little kids. We would take the train to New York City and see all the concerts at Madison Square Garden, like Alice Cooper and stuff like that. You know, and then we found out about CBGBs and we found out a bar that you could drink in underage. <laughs> that was the main reason why we went down there. And then we walked in and was like, holy shit! You know, there's been like suicide on stage. We're like, this is fucking amazing. Fuck this Madison Square Garden shit. Yeah, this is for me. So we launched full into that in our own weird little way. We are, you know, obviously we're from New Jersey, we're not from New York, so we got it all wrong. But, you know, <laughs> we thought we were going to do something like cross between like the Ramones and Alice Cooper or something. And, uh, but what happened, what happened? So we went into the, into that world, got in a van, toured around for, you know, rode around the stage for like, ah, uh, shit, probably way too long, six or seven years. Wow. But in those days, there was a punk club in every town, and you could, you know, survive. Yeah, and there was a network, I guess. Uh, yeah, there was a network, and it was a true, you know, a true network of places, and, and I didn't need much in a cigarette and beer. Yeah. But, you know, I slept in the van, or we went out and picked up girls to get a place to sleep. So how old are you roughly at this point? You're, like, still a teenager, early 20s? Teenager. Yeah, teenager into the early 20s. So what point did you uh, start, like, kind of moving out of this sort of just, you know, naked aggression, uh, you know, three-minute, like, format of uh, punk rock, you know, get in, get out, and start, you know, spreading out at, you know, to the point where you did stuff like Spine of God and... Right. Well, what happened was, basically, like, we broke up, uh, as most bands do. Uh, I kind of went off and was like, hey, look, I can dig a hole and make money. You know, this is fun. (laughs) Dude, I've been... I never really got into the, you know, I was like totally like in the rock thing. In the band, drinking beer, getting laid, doing that thing. I quit high school and went right into that. So, after Shrapnel ended, it was like a novelty for me to live a regular life. Yeah. I was like, hey, this is cool. Well, within about two or three years, I was like, there's something missing. You know, so 
Baba Hawkwind. And at this point, it was pretty hard to, I mean, you wouldn't hear that stuff on the radio, and you had to really know about it to find it. Oh, yeah, I had to, like, search, totally search it out. And it came back to me, like, the way that you remember, you read an old comic book to your kid, you're like, yeah, that's right, I remember that fucking comic book, that was great. And that's what happened to me with psychedelic music. It just came back as this super fucking cool and very, very clear in my face memory of all this cool shit that I had put in, like, the back catalog of my brain because I was so involved in the punk rock thing. Yeah. And then it just opened up, so, I mean, while my love of punk rock will never die, I think my calling always was the first stuff that I really heard, which was uh, a combination of British hard rock, American grand funk style, Detroit style rock, and anything psychedelic. And that's kind of, in a way, that you were... Uh you were exhuming, like, you know, a portion of, of what the Stooges really were to begin with, because they were originally known as the Psychedelic Stooges. And That's right. Yeah, those guys, I mean, I've heard some, like, early likes of them. Those guys, when they when they were the Psychedelic Stooges, and it's fucking insane. It sounds like the Doors. I mean, for a while, they had a keyboard. Yeah. They had, like, an organ guy. Right. <laughs> or they got into the total, you know, like, first Stooges album. And, uh, yeah, for me, it's absolutely no problem for me to make a stew of my favorite stuff. I mean, my brain is like a stew anyway. It's like half <laughs> like Jack Kirby comic books, cool movies that I saw, favorite bands. Um, I'll sing melody lines. I'll sing like Iron Butterfly vocals over a Black Sabbath riff. Right. No problem at all. It's just all stuff that I love. Yeah, and that's, I guess, a rare thing that people really just give themselves the authority to say, well, I can put these things together. They don't have to be in what other people recognize as the same genre. Absolutely not. I mean, that's a big mistake if you do that because then all of a sudden, all the fun for you or for the writer, in, my, in this case me, but for anyone, half the fun of writing is, um, is jamming all that stuff together. I mean, nothing comes from nothing. Everything comes from something. Yeah. And it comes from the stuff that you love. And it's easy for me, it's e as easy for me to try to put a soundtrack to a visual that I got off a movie. psychedelic stuff being was really closely tied with with you know the uh, purported drug use by you guys or at least something you sort of played up how real was that in your uh, playing of the music and your creating of the music creating of the music it never really had that much to do I always write straight I mean not that I haven't tried writing on LSD which I have but it's always been like total bollocks you know I mean, yeah the iron butterfly syndrome um, you don't know when to quit right? like, well, you write it and you're like it's all good dude and the next day you wake up and you're like this is Yeah, like uh, I mean, I forget what the the song. Uh, maybe it is Tab, the that open that's on that Tab in twenty five. I mean, that sounds like you were just in the studio with a mic in front of you while you were tripping. That's exactly what it was, except I wasn't tripping. Um, I have spent my whole like teenage years completely tripping mm -hmm. and doing everything and anything that anybody offered me or I could buy or whatever. I mean, it was like you know, I was one of those guys in school. I wasn't a jock, and I wasn't quite a geek, although it was about a half an inch away from being a geek. 
I don't know, larger issues, you, themes that you could hold on to? Yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. I, I would imagine, you know what happened first? I was, I got suckered into it because it was so much fun to go into it. Yeah. Um, you know, when you get that thing, and, and plus the basics. The basics were offered to me for the first time in my life, even more than the punk rock band. The basics of rock and roll excess were offered to me on a silver platter. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, what did you always want when you were 17? There's many girls that you could fuck. There they are. Yeah. <laughs> what did you want, ever want to do? I wanted to do a fuzz bass solo that was a half an hour long. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, and I want to do is I want people to give me free drugs and um, and license to be an absolute fucking maniac and tell everybody to suck Satan's cock. And not have to work in the morning. Or, hey? <laughs> and then not have to work in the morning. Exactly. So I took it all. I was like, hey, man, you know, I'm going in. Um, and it came, <laughs> but the, I took all that stuff, and that was my personal life, which is pretty fucking crazy. At the same time, the music, to be written. Mm-hmm. I said the lyrics, what, the lyrics changed a lot because the lyrics had to be written uh, about what was happening to me right now. But you wrote in a very abstract, kind of poetic style about it. Um, yeah, definitely on purpose, because I really think that, um, uh, with a couple exceptions in Monster Magnets, um, musicians that you've read that, that have given you a direction? I should try to figure that out. I should try to figure that out sometime. Because um, the music's pretty easy. I mean, that's pretty, that's, that's bone simple. Um, yeah. Uh, the lyrics, I'm trying to think of like how this comes down just because there's so much stuff that I like. There's so many lyricists that I like. There's so much written stuff. Any books that you, you know, or? Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, it was like Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. Yeah. It's boring shit. I would say today the fucking earth 
Yeah. And that means I broke up with my girlfriend. Um, so I think there's a combination of it, like that kind of Thompson stuff. Um, to a stream of consciousness, consciousness kind of thing. Conscious stuff, which I had no problem following when I was a kid. I know a lot of, you know, I've talked to a lot of people today that can say, I don't know where that guy's come from. I was just, just let him go. <laughs> Figure out the first sentence, you know what I mean? Just ingest the whole thing as a vibe and then see if you can relate to it. But then, you know, it's a weird time. Um, as far as lyrics go, as far as rock and roll goes, Iggy, you know, Iggy wrote some of the best lyrics I ever heard, Bowie, Alice Cooper. Um, I thought Mick Jagger was always good with the double double entendre and the uh, and the couched meaning. Mick Jagger? Oh, Mick Jagger is fucking excellent. Yeah, really, really good. I mean, those guys don't really get enough credit now for the stuff they did because, well, for some reason now people don't see them want to investigate. You know, it's too much trouble for them to investigate into a lyric. You know, it all yeah. too much time. It's like, why does that guy just say what he means? Um, but that, there's a certain lack of poetry, a lack of uh, want for poetry and music right now. That'll go away. That'll come back. I think there was, for me, in my exploration of Monster Magnet, at the point that when you hit Power Trip, I thought that was the point where you got the most uh, communicative of what you were really trying to go for. Like, you really sort of explained. And there were a bunch of things that you said that I took away from it actually informed my own life that I found really quixotic. The idea that, you know, the only reality you you really can count on is the one in your head, and you ought to make yourself as big as possible. You know, that the Power Trip is self-mythologizing, and you... You know, you got to see yourself as the most important thing is in the universe because you are. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. It's a matter of survival. You know, ego is not a dirty word. You know what I mean? It's, it's a the living of, planet, right? Um, it's it's survival. And with Power Trip, you know, like half, more than half that record came out of me just going, like, what do you guys want? Me talking to a record company guy. I like, what do you want? What do you want? You just put tits and money on everything to sell it? I'll do it. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant what you ended up doing with the Space Lord video and uh, uh, what was the other one that that mimicked sort of the uh, Hype Williams thing. Hello? Still there? Damn, this fucking band is practicing here and it's fucking up the intercom on the uh, on the phone. Let me see if I, I've cranked it up some. This might make it better. All right, going, going back to speaker. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Fuck. Damn. I don't know what I'm gonna do about this. Uh, yeah, I actually, I just moved to Southern California from the East Coast, and uh, we, I work for a small punk label, and in order to afford the practice space, we let one of the bands uh, uh, practice in here. And I also live here. Could I call you? Well, I mean, well, let's let's just go ahead and keep talking because I, I might I could just maybe keep notes from this. But um, we were just talking about power trip and uh, and yeah, you you got into the the um sort of lampooning the current rock imagery and then chilling like why isn't it like this? Why isn't it like these rap videos?
used with hair metal. Yeah, they were really, you know, it, it, they were still very, very close to that era it, of, of hair metal. So I, a lot of those bands <clears throat> that came out of the Seattle scene, of, of the Seattle scene uh, created uh, were very, very over-concerned about the perception in the press. Do you think there was anything politically going on that time that made them feel like a pressure besides that? A lot of women that were had big smiles on their faces and were dancing, and they weren't thinking a thing of it. This phone is not working as well as my other one. God damn it. All right. One, hold on one more second. Hey, I'm still doing that. I can only do that phone interview in here. So, like, if anybody talks, it, like, cuts off the, uh, can we shut that door for me? Thanks. Hey, you there? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I was kind of curious, like, uh, during that period of time where you, you know, you, a and M seemed to be trying to push you guys into a uh, a different mold than you really belonged to belonged in. I mean, is that what happened? Do you think? Well, those guys, you know, they tried as hard as they could to get us anywhere that they could. Um, in retrospect, those guys were probably some of the nicest people I ever met. <coughs> the A and R guy that signed us actually said to me, "I don't know what the hell you guys do, but please do it over here." So you can't be more honest than that. Um, He's a, I have no idea what you're doing. I just like the energy. And then the, the folks at A&M uh, were confused by Monster Magnet. Also very enthusiastic about it and tried to stick us in any hole that would be, except, you know, within the system of selling rock records. Yeah. And meantime, I'm over here going, well, you know, I'm just going to do what I do and... Uh, and hope that you guys can sell it. And you know something? It worked. Yeah. But what happened was A&M was sold right right at the beginning of Power Trip. A&M was sold to uh, Seagram's, and then Seagram's was sold to Universal. So all those people that have worked Monster Man since, you know, like 92 or whatever, um, they were all summarily fired, folded. And they were replaced with basically, yep, cell phone using metal guys who were completely confused by the whole thing. So that was over. Any kind of understanding that was that was between A and M and Monster Man was gone because all the people were gone. And yeah, you're still locked into a contract, isn't it? Oh, we were, yeah, we were still locked into a contract. So Power Trip actually did what it did on its own because all the people that were behind Power Trip that started it off at A and M were really nice people. Whether you know, regardless of whether they were hip or not. They're as hip as they're going to get concerning us because I don't make it about it's kind of hard to understand what the hell's going on in Monster Maryland. Yeah, I always thought, I mean, like, it is a hard thing uh, to just turn somebody on too cold, but they, 
you know, I, the people the people who get it, you know, or, or people I want to know, you know. Oh, worth it, man. I mean, totally well worth it for me. So when the new regime came in, basically I was part of not a record company, but a movie company. Yeah. And and that was Interscope Records. We were basically turned over from A and M to Interscope. I mean, it still had the A and M imprint, but it was being run by Interscope, and Interscope had better things to do. They were on a ride of of a life with Limp Biscuit and New Metal, and wherever we want to call it, that was where it was at. Rap, that pop. As for a psychedelic, you know, psychedelic rock band like Monster Mine to mix them with those things, it just wasn't going to happen. I knew it the minute it went down, and the minute it did down, I did kind of go over and said to the new people I was working with, uh, can I get out of here? <laughs> and and I, th- I, I thought they would drop us in a second, when actually it turned out to be a lot harder than that, because Power Trip had done well enough for them to want to hold on to us. Yeah. But then eventually not well enough for them to be happy, and, or not well enough for them to promote us in the way that uh, that had a record like that should be promoted. So I said, well, look, you got, we're both stuck. In a, in a position, I think you should just drop us. Yeah. And uh, they're like, well, no, we want another record, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, look, I'm not going to make a record just so you guys could not afford it. I'd rather, you know, do an indie deal and, like, feed my guys. Yeah. Because the way you guys operate is that you get, like, 50%. <laughs> you know, you charge us 50% back for all your bullshit promotion, your posters and, and your radio payola and, um, your four-star hotels for your A&R guys and all the money that those guys run up from running a huge corporation to promote a band that you know, they want to sell them. Well, you know, we'd really be happy if we sold three million copies. And I was like, dude, there's not three million cool people in the world. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, let's be realistic here. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So, eventually, finally, they were like, okay, you know, uh, Big and the greatest hits, and that was it. And then you made so like now I've heard this story uh, alluded to a couple of different places about how you had a, a record written that uh, that was supposed to be in the place of God says no, but uh, it was stolen or something like that. But yeah, it, what it was, it was God says no in its original form, which I never really got to explore. Unfortunately, I had to, it was one of those those weird times. It was on the run. As usual, we toured like all over the world, probably five times as much as as any other band that was on that label at that time. And I started writing in a manic fashion. I've written fast before. You know, the record before Power Trip was written in like about three weeks. So I felt confident that I could, I was like, I can write it, I'll do it. And I was driving back and forth to New Mexico to see my kid. Which is actually a good way to write. You stop at a cheap hotel, you write a bunch of stuff, you look out the window, you know? Yeah. Eat a cheeseburger, drink a cup of coffee, get back in the car and start driving. And uh, I quite like it, actually. You know, I like hotels. And um, so I'm writing all this stuff willy-nilly mm. a four-track, and I got a drum machine. This is the way I always write stuff. Here's some music, here's some lyrics, here's some music, here's some lyrics. A lot of it was untogether, but I knew that if I had all the parts, that I would quickly put them together. And what happened was that I... Uh, Instead of putting it together in a reasonable fashion as I did it, I just left it in a big pile. Mm-hmm. That big pile got stolen. Wow. Like perfect 
stop at a rest stop. Somebody busts the window because they see a black leather bag in the back of a car. Thinks that there's something in it. It's probably some crackhead. And uh, it's gone. Meanwhile, I had the producer of the band. I had already locked myself into a studio in Vancouver with deadlines for a scheduled release on Universal Records. You know, so, you know, I mean... Uh, it's not like the dog ate my homework and that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm too old for that shit. You can't do that. You know, hippopotamus ate my homework. Uh, could I have another... I don't know. And, and when I said to myself, well, how long would it take for me to get back to that situation? And does it really matter? I mean, I'm not going to start backtracking my life. Just write the fucking thing over. And I did. The only problem with that was I uh, joined a production of the record. I wasn't there during the day mm-hmm. as the uh, tracks were put down. Like I was there for production, pre-production. Wrote the songs at a manic pace, really, really fucking crazed pace. I mean, literally, I'd like write a song one night, bring it into the band the next day. They'd rehearse it. I'd go home, write another song, bring it back in the next day. And those guys go, okay, what do you got? I was like, all right, I got two. I wrote two songs last night. And, but they sounded good. You know, and it wasn't like, it's, oh my God, this is fucking shit. We're just going to look laying on and shit. They sounded cool. And, um, uh, the main problem I had with guys says no besides losing the material was the fact that I kept trying to like spiff it up before yeah. um, I could actually I, I, I kept trying to spiff it up as the thing was being produced so I brought the whole circus to Vancouver and I hired really really good people I mean Randy Stop, who is an engineer from Metallica <clears throat> Matt Hyde who I um, co-produced um, Power Trip with and these are really really good guys Hear the songs. These are the songs. We rehearse them with the band. You guys get in there and record the basic tracks, bass and drums, guitar. Uh, and I'm going to say, now tell and finish up the lyrics on this stuff. Because that's, you know, that's the worst thing to do is to lose the lyrics because music, I'm back, works a little bit more, you know? Yeah. A little bit more time. So I would wake up at like nine, write lyrics all day, and then get in there by four or four thirty. And what happened, I lost, and I discovered, I should say, I discovered the fact that I could never leave anybody alone with monsters, ever. <laughs> Not for a second. Not a second. Because there's a certain amount of oomph <clears throat> that has to be there at all times. I mean, it has to be obsessively empty because recording a record is really just a simulation of a live event. And do you guys record like that? I mean, do you play as the whole band in the studio, or is it a lot of mostly overdubbing? No, we'll, we'll play as a whole band, and then we'll go from there. And then I'll overdub from there. So you lay down like a scratch track kind of a thing? Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So there, you do get to have that energy happen where everybody's playing together? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, every time. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, every single time. Um, in the case of God says, no, I wasn't there at that process. Those tracks were recorded with the guys themselves, but not me. Um, and a lot of the overdubbing, like the re-bass lines and stuff like that, which all excellently done, I thought. I mean, everything was like perfectly well done. Came out, but the only thing that was missing 
that I thought at the end of the record, which still that record doesn't bother me half as much as it bothers a lot of Marshall Manson, um, was the urgency that is there usually when I'm there because I'm just a chain-smoking maniac. Yeah. And when I'm there, even from the beginning, everybody gets a little nervous, and everybody is harder because I'm there like, God damn it, you know, like, fuck, I'm it's gotta be like a fucking volcano spitting out fucking platter ass with a fucking kid hanging off it. And gotta, you know, and they're looking at me like I'm some sort of a maniac. Yeah. And one way or another, the job gets done. And uh, in the case of God says no, the thing came out uh, a little less in your face. In a lot, of, in a lot of ways, than I would love to be in your face. A little less personal than I, I ever should have been. And there was nothing I could do about it at that point. I think that there's, I think that's a great record. I would say my beef with it would be more that like there was so much more of a uh, over the top like persona created by or for you guys at that point. It's true. Yeah, it's just, you're right. I mean, I could have been working. You know, uh, I could have been working against myself by changing by you know changing vibes or whatever. I mean, there, there was you know, there was like the switch from denim to leather or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. But um, I, I read somewhere that there was some, you had some plan to go into Vietnam and write at that time also. I did. I wanted to go to Vietnam in the worst way, you know. I was like, you know, a complete fucking child of like Apocalypse Now. Like, I want to go. I want to fucking go to Saigon and, you know, sit in the same hotel that Michael Hare wrote Dispatches in, you know. Yeah. I think, you know, I, if it worked in Vegas. Right. You know, it's got to work in Vietnam. Like, this would be the coolest thing in the world. Well, unfortunately... Deadlines, touring, and all that kind of stuff kind of took me, and basically my daughter, you know, uh -huh. uh, kind of took me away from the Vietnam vibe, and um, I wound up writing that thing across America in a, in a series of hotel rooms. So you never even uh, went to Vietnam? No, 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 I wish I did. But there, there's a song on there, I guess, that I thought maybe was a holdover from those that idea. There's a lyric about Vietnam. Yeah, Vietnam comes up a lot, actually. It's come up a couple times in, uh, in Monster Man songs. I mean, Vietnam's a great metaphor for disaster. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I had a girlfriend that I used to call Vietnam. <laughs> that was her name. I was like, hey, Vietnam, how you doing? You know, which explains a lot, you know, if you don't you know, understand the Vietnam War and, like, how much confusion there was. <laughs> I was like, hey, good morning, Miss Vietnam. Yeah. So that comes up a lot. I wish I'd come. I, I still, I still want to go. Everybody's going over there now. Yeah, it seems like you know, it's gotten to be a playground even for some some types of uh, jet setters. Holy Thailand, Vietnam, it's like a whole trip up there. I, I keep hearing these stories about everybody going up there, I'm like, just completely, like, going preserved, you know, buying, like, bootleg diet and, like, you know, uh, you know, women for a dollar, you know, that kind of shit, a godless land. <laughs> uh, I was curious, uh, I have a really good friend who's also a huge Monster Magnet fan of Richmond. He was telling me that that song, The Right Stuff, was a cover by some lesser-known band. Yeah. But Hawkwind covered it first, or has Hawkwind got nothing to do with that song? No, Hawkwind's got everything to do with it. Um, Hawkwind, the people from Hawkwind, the singer from Hawkwind in 1972, decided to do a solo album. His name was Robert Calvert, and he did a solo album called Captain Lockheed and the Starfighters. Uh -huh. he, he, he then invited all of his friends in Hawkwind and other people, like Brian Eno, Paul Rudolph from the Pig Fairies, Jim Capaldi from Traffic, all these wacky people. Wow. Arthur Brown from the Crazy World of Arthur Brown, they all came.
came and they did this concept record. And it was like a true 70s concept record, except this record was about probably the most politically incorrect thing you can imagine. It was about German Air Force in the 1950s trying to rebuild themselves, which is a true story, buying airplanes, jet fighters from the United States, and then overloading them with armaments. And every single one of these Starfighter aircrafts that they bought, I think they bought like 50 craft, because the Germans couldn't leave it alone. <laughs> adding more bombs to them. But we want, we we don't just want a fair weather fighter, we need a, a plane for bombing straight. So this guy writes a whole album about it. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. I highly recommend it. I mean, it's, 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 it's like pure punk rock, really, when you think about it. Um, it's got dialogue on it. It's got those guys like screaming in German. It's like insane. Uh, and out of it came this song, The Right Stuff, which I just totally kicked my ass. And had to kick my ass forever. And will continue to kick my ass. Do you think that, they, you know, at the point that you started Monster Magnet, some of the bands you were referencing, uh, like maybe Captain Beyond, were, like what, 20 years old at that point? Yeah. And, uh, and they weren't fair, all that well known. Do you think that there's actually, you're crossing over into, into the frame of reference where you're going to be one of those bands for some other psychopath? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That would be a high compliment, I must say. Um, but I'm not qualified to, to, to uh, predict anything like that. I mean, the world's moving so fast. Yeah. Well, do you find it interesting, at least, to be looking at from this perspective of having this body of work behind you and, and realize that when you started, it, you were you had this distance from those records that, that you know you now have from your first Monster Magnet record. Yeah, it's wild, you know, and I used to think about, uh, you know, when people ask me questions like this earlier on, and they're like, well, how could you reference something, you know, how could you be selling to something that's 20 years old? And I said, well, you know, how could fucking Eric Clapton guys be influenced by 20-year-old blues guy, you know, 20, 20 years past blues guys? I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Just because, I mean, in fact, Yeah, and the less it applies to your immediate, like, hey, you know. less it applies to your immediate thing, so it's going to come out somewhat original because you're in another world. You've drawn your inspiration from another time, from another world. Your interpretation of it, of course, is going to be different if you've got any self-respect at all. You're not going to do a carbon copy of it. And um, basically, my, my lack of skill that, that these guys are my lack of skill to match up to them is a really important component for me to, to finishing off Monster Man's song. Now, if I could do a carbon copy of a Tony or a carbon copy of, of any of those bands I'm talking about, it probably wouldn't nearly be as interesting to me because I'd be over it. But the thing is, I try, I fail, and then I fill in the blanks with whatever I've got going on in my head. Yeah. You know, and they go, okay, there you go. Um, it, I think it's just, you know, it's called influences. Yeah. Basically, you know, it's really simple, you know. Here's your influences. <clears throat> and they can come from all over. Somebody once said, uh, you know, steal from a wide variety of sources, something like that. Definitely. And it's like the more you love, the more you got to go with. Um, I can never understand um, people who just reference uh, popular music to write their music. 
Yeah, I don't like, you know, I, I like seeing people going back, for instance, and exploring various, you know, types of rock like you have, or even, or even types of like, you know, new, more, more recent, like, experimental shit like New Wave. But when everybody's into the exact same bands in the band, they just come out sounding like those bands, and it's not... Yeah, it's a flat line situation. Nobody wants a flat line. Nobody loves a smooth, perfect line. It's boring. You know? And, uh, and you know, every producer in the world for pop music in the last, like, ten years has gone for that flat line. And uh, it's, it's pretty disturbing when you've got bands that look scary. They're all covered with tattoos. They're pierced up the ass. They're out there screaming about child abuse getting fucked up the ass and they're still boring. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, how in the world could they finally manage to have bands that are the scariest looking are talking about heinous crimes and are still boring? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like, it's called fucking no imagination. Yeah. That's, and it's, there's not much to encourage imagination these days. It's all being re replaced. It is definitely replaced. I mean, it is there. Is it real? Now, is it going to satisfy people forever? Definitely not. You're going to see a spiritual revolution in the next 10 years. It's going to blow anything that we ever saw in the 60s away. Are you familiar with uh, Terrence McKenna? Um, just slightly, probably not. Give me, give me he's, a, he's a writer that was, uh, I mean, he wrote a book called Food of the Gods. It talked about psilocybin mushrooms uh, okay. being, being connected to human consciousness. But he has this, this theory that at the end of the Mayan calendar, which is like 2011, that the whole, that that's pretty much like the end of the, of the world, but not the end of the world, but, that when, but more the world we know, like some major shift is going to happen. I, I fully agree. I mean, I can feel it. I can feel it. I mean, there's a, as, the, the boy, as the boy gets bigger, the more that you know, people accept the media uh, to fill in the blanks for them, to create their own imagination for them, the more they allow that to happen, the bigger the, the void, they don't even realize it's happening. And when, it, when they turn on it, which they will, they're going to be looking for, for people. That, they're going to be looking to themselves and for art, good old-fashioned art, which is poetry, to express emotions. It can't be expressed in any other way. They can't be filled in with all the lollipops and all the fucking computers and iPods and emails and cell phones and all this stuff. You just can't do it without some sort of poetry uh, to it. it it's going to be soulless. Yeah. Right now, people are, you know, the, the star of the early 21st century is a novelty of tech. Emphasis on novelty. That's actually what McKenna, he, he came up with this uh, timeline that, uh, that he created out of a computer program that like mixes like some kind of probability that matches the I Ching, and he calls it novelty theory. Really? Yeah, you should check it out, man. You would dig it the most. What's his first name again? Terrence. Terrence, okay. He just died uh, a couple years ago from a brain tumor. But he was a really amazing thinker, and, uh, and, and he basically was saying that all of this, that, the, that the, the novelty of technology was outstripping human evolution, and that we were going to reach some point where there was just like an, a sort of an implosion. I agree. I think it'll happen, and I think it'll be a good thing. It won't be a bad thing. It'll be very interesting. It'll be like, holy shit, you know, like, wow, these guys are really fucking, you know, you know, we've created these machines that have set a pace, that have tried to fill in the gap, and a certain amount of people bought it. There's a couple generations that sadly have to be written off as suckers. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Even things will be like, you know, oh, I had Jimi Hendrix. I had the biscuit. Oops, you know, I'm sorry. Sorry, dude. 
You know, I was listening. There's some kids that practice next door to here. Uh, like three kids that are just learning to play guitar, bass, and drums. And they're not fucking with that shit. They're in there playing uh, Voodoo Child's Flight Return. <laughs> you know? So, you know, I think that it, there's an amazing, uh, you know, knack for uh, people to see through the bullshit. Yeah. Well, if anybody can do it, it's kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, you can't fool kids with Toronto. Like, a lot of people today love to say, and I, I, and I have to, you know, misquote a lot to say that, you know, everything is fucked and, you know, computers are taken over. Um, this is a very, very temporary situation. We are just temporarily, the mass audience is temporarily hypnotized by the novelty of technology. That's the mass audience. And that doesn't count the smart people. The smart people don't get marketed to because the people who market garbage are not going to chase after smart people. They're not going to get chase discerning as if the whole world's gone dumb. That's really not the case. Fermenting underground, or I shouldn't even say underground because that doesn't even apply anymore. It's like a fourth dimension now. Um, ferment all around within people who seem dumb is a need. And that need will be filled. I mean, and, and, and it's going to be filled by kids because basically kids can see through bullshit faster than anybody. They're not wasting time analyzing things. They just feel. So, you know, a lot of these kids in the so-called lost generation or, you know, a couple of written-off generations are going to be the ones that actually see through it. So nothing, I don't think anything is wasted. All I can say is that it's a very, very interesting time right now. Um, because to be in the middle of this, like kind of like throbbing, hypnotizing, as fast as you go, thing, you still feel, even with 350 channels or how many channels, even with the internet, you still feel that hunger. You know something's gonna go. Yeah, there's still, yeah, even the dumbasses. You, yeah, you're right. They can, they, you can see them sort of like, you know, calling for something, some kind of quality, and they're not buying all of that bullshit that's rammed down their throat. Spiritual nutrition. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, really, it's like, you know, if you feed somebody Twinkies every fucking day, eventually their body's going to tell them to eat something besides a goddamn Twinkie. <laughs> so I guess, uh, which, in wrapping this up, I, this really, I know, a, a hard question to answer, but I'm just curious, like, what what is your favorite Monster Magnet record? Oh, shit. I don't know. Um, I have a hard time with that stuff just because I'm so thinking about the next Monster Magnet record. Yeah, but I mean, you know, not resting on your laurels or anything like that, but like, you know, I mean, just, you know, on like just some basic level, like, what was the one that was, you know, one that you, when you put them on, if you ever listen to them, it's just really, you're like, you know, I, that got the closest to what I was going for up to this point. Weird. It's a weird question. I mean, but probably the, the latest one was closest to what I intended. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was the closest to what I intended. I knew what I wanted, and I got it amazingly fast. And amazingly fast, fast, because I was excited about new players and stuff like that. Well, how do you feel about these records like Spine of God or Super Judge or... Oh, man, I mean, I, mean, I love them because they remind me of a certain time period, and I know why they work in it as... See, I have to separate the writer from the... You know, because when I listen to Super Joseph, I can think about it. It's like, oh my God, I did two weeks and I never got a chance to mix it the way I wanted to. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, that, it reminds me of like, fuck. <laughs> I think 
think that record sounds great. I mean, that wall of sound that you get for, uh, I guess it is the is it the actual song, Super Jet? What's the one that's like, uh, my head exploded and my mind was a mountain of weed? Yeah, that's Super Jet, yeah. I mean, the sound of that, just the way that it's, it just permeates the air. Yeah, that's a lot of fucking guitars. That's what's going on. There are a lot of fuzz boxes. Um, so, I'll look at it, like, back at the, My first song will be personal. Like, I remember that. It was a magic shot. I didn't have enough time, and I was really bad. Um, and I wanted to, to fix it again, but I didn't get a chance. Then if I look at it as a listener, I'll go, this is fucking insane. This is really cool. Why is it really cool? Well, go back to A. You were really bad. <laughs> something to that you know maybe there's something good about being frantic maybe there's something good about not having enough time hell I mean we're talking about rock and roll here an artistic experience um, and the best rock and roll exists in that crossroads between uh, what you're thinking and what you're feeling absolutely absolutely so I can't pick a favorite but I can, I can uh, alright well I'll put it to you like this when you're when you're playing a show is there a song that you go into that, like, you know, you just just does it for you more than... Yeah, it's fine, I got Yeah. Yeah, hands down, because it gives me more room. You know, I love, I love transcendental music. I love stuff that gives me space. Um, I'll extend songs and concerts just to give me space. I love to have the space. I love, um, I love songs that, uh, let, that let me, like, tease, basically. You know, move it up, move it down, move it up, move it faster, slower. Take your time. Um, so yeah, like live, that kind of stuff, like Spine of God, Cage Around the Sun, um, Cry from God Says No, and all the little songs, like Black Balloon, and, and the tiny little songs, they were always my favorites on the Monster Man records because they're, they're very personal, and um, they're weird. Yeah, I've, I've definitely, I love those little songs as much as I like the big ones. I mean, I like it when you say something like, you know, you live like a king and you fucking show muscle. Is that the line? Or? Yeah, yeah. And then I like, you know, the the sort of the, the, the sadness of, like, Black Balloon. or, or I, I think it's a great combination of those. Is, is it the song Murder, where it's like, I always try to do the right thing? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's just, that to me is like a perfect cross between those... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really a huge fan, and it's, I've really, you know, I had to, like, hold back from, like, you know, talking about it on a personal level and do it as more as an interviewer tonight. <laughs> it's the fact that you listen to music, man, I mean, that's, like, that's awesome. You know, how many people I talk to are just, like, you know, favorite color. <laughs> yeah. That's your favorite color. Well, man, when you, power, what you were saying around Power Trip really pushed me in a direction that got me to go for mine and, like, really pick up a guitar and, like, you know, have the balls to do my own thing. You know, and I've, I've definitely, I've constantly referred in my mind and to other people, like, just, you know, where you, your voice was like a fucking voice in the wilderness at that point. You know, there's just so much bullshit around. I just left New York. I was in self-imposed exile when that record came out, and it was just what I needed to hear. Yeah. Cool, man. I totally appreciate it. I can, I can imagine what it is, uh, what it's like, you know, being around the, the Matador crowd and that kind of thing. <laughs> You know, on the one hand, it really encouraged me to rock, and man, it was, you know, it made me pick up a fucking, you know, an instrument and say, well, you know, this is what I think should be going on, you know. So it was, it was something to rebel against. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and that's really important. I mean, uh, I'm always looking to, um, uh, I, I realize the, the importance of rebelling, and, uh, you know, there's no shortage of stuff to rebel against, that's for sure. But when it's stuck in your face in a job situation, like you're talking about, 
wanted to ask you about it. You, you've always said that the monster magnet came from that, that toy, the monster magnet toy. Yeah. But there was also a Frank Zappa song. Oh, it gets weirder than that. Yeah, there was a there's Return of the Son of Monster Magnet by Frank Zappa. Plus, get this, even five years before that, there was a, 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 a Japanese cartoon show. And the name of the cartoon show was Tobar the Eighth Man. And the name of the episode was Monster Magnet. <laughs> well, I also heard it as a term for when you were tripping, that you were suddenly surrounded by freaks and you, you felt like you'd become a monster magnet. <laughs> that, that came later. No, that's after all that, you know. That came later. <laughs> <clears throat> the original thing was just, it was a toy. And that was one of like a dozen names that we had at the time. Yeah, I saw that on that, that fan site, uh, tribute to Monster Man. He, he named a whole bunch of the other ones and you eventually just decided on... Yeah, well, actually, you decided us. Like, what happened was, well, I was putting out... I was putting out tapes under the under the name of uh, Love Monster. And they were like, my first four-track, my first four-track experience. My first one, I got a guitar and I wrote a bunch of songs, which actually wrote a lot of the songs when I played it with Monster Man. At the same time, um, Tim Cronin and John McBain had a, uh, a band called uh, Dog of Mystery, and they were also four-track guys. We got together and started playing out under the name First of Dog of Mystery, and then as I moved the song into it, we started changing the name of the band because it actually wasn't you know, Dog of Mystery anymore. Dog of Mystery was more like a butthole surfers thing. Uh-huh. So, name after name, I mean, it got ridiculous. It was like King Fuzz, Acid Right, Man, This is the Mongoose. <laughs> I mean, like, just ridiculous. Vietnam is more of a pussy than the one who got out of it. Well, you know why? Because the Bush administration has got the biggest selling tool that any administration ever 
Yeah. Playing the fear card every day. Oh my God, we're all gonna die. Oh my God, but guess what, dude? We're not all gonna die. You know something? It doesn't matter who the fuck is in there. We're not all gonna die. And, number two, you're a fucking crook. <laughs> and it's written all over you. He's a crook. Yeah. He's, he's broken the law. I mean, the guy is a crook. You wait. I mean, another four years. I'm Yeah. 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 I mean, he's just like fucking you know anybody that's like you know that we're we're talking about as some kind of a religious extremist in another country. They, you know. is there to restrict activity. I mean, it's, it was created to, like, free people. Exactly. And it's worth fighting for, you know? It's worth, you know, it's, it's talking about being brave. The brave thing to do, the most American thing to do, in anybody's terms, is to vote by out. This guy is not standing up for America. Believe you me, stand up for himself and his fucking warped concept. Yeah. His, and, and his cronies, I mean... Have you ever seen a bigger pack of weirdos and fucking freaks in your whole goddamn life? No, I mean, like, fucking, you look at Dick Cheney, that guy's like the dictionary definition of one of those pigs that Pink Floyd would sing about, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's right in front of everybody's face, and the only thing that's keeping from realizing that totally is fear. They're afraid to pass the baton in 
did stream. Yeah. Like, oh my God, if if we vote Abu Bakr, then the terrorists are gonna, what? The terrorists are gonna do what? Blow something else up? Big fucking deal. <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. What's bigger of a deal is having your freedom taken away from, and you wind up exactly like Pink Floyd. <laughs> intensity while the best lack all moral conviction. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You know, the smarter you are, the, the harder it is for you to choose a course of action. And, like, we got all these smart people sitting around talking about how much everything sucks, but they're just sitting in some fucking coffee shop. They're not out in the goddamn street with a stick. Uh, they've, they've uh, unfortunately, been, uh, been given uh, a, a cybernetic carrot. And uh, they're going to bite that carrot. They think they're actually getting something. But it's like, no, you got to look. Use this thing as a tool and get out there and get on the street because nothing, nothing replaces physical presence. You know? Dope, dope guns and fucking in the streets. Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, um, I let's hope, you know, and they hope it'll be four more years of these jackasses and we're going to be fucking paying for this forever. Yeah, oh. and they, yeah, they got, then they're trying to bring Jeb in right behind all of that. Yeah, there's another bush. And all I can see is just all out hell. You know, all out fucking hell. Like, okay, Bush gets voted back, voted back in. All right, oh, he's got four more years. Here comes the draft. Yeah. Gonna happen. That yeah. would be the only fucking thing that would polarize anybody is fear of their own ass. Well, you know? that's what happened in Vietnam. Yeah. Paid attention to Vietnam until the body bags got stacked so fucking high. And the body counts got so high that people were like, oh my God, what's going on? Well, what's going on here is what's been going on for the past four years. You dipshit, you're too busy with your fucking elbow inside a potato chip bag. <laughs> I did fucking Mary 
happens if you didn't pay attention. Our curse is our blessing. We have a free country and allows people to be free to not pay attention. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, what did that Devo said? Freedom of choice is what you got, but freedom from choice is what you want. Aha! Very good. People are so much more, I mean, given all the opportunities and all the choices they have, they'd much rather follow fashion. Absolutely, what's easier? And it doesn't ask the hard questions. Well, Dave, again, it's been really great talking to you. Before we go, I was wondering, uh, my good friend Ryan, who works in a cubicle in Richmond, I was wondering if you could give some kind of rock and roll encouragement to him. His name's Ryan Muldoon. I'll just let you speak. Okay, well, what does he do in the cubicle? He writes copy. Okay. You know, it's just kind of like a, a boring job. But you could just say, this is Dave Windorf. Get up off your ass and rock or something like that. His name is Ryan, right? Okay. Ryan. Yeah, I'm talking to you, Ryan. What was that? That was my phone. Go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> Ryan. Yeah, I'm talking to you, Ryan. This is Dave Windorf from Monster Man. Write yourself out of that fucking cubicle, all right? Do it. Perfect. Awesome. I really, it's great hearing that again. Such it is, such as it is, unprofessional and all. Um, I gotta find that Josh Homme one. I thought it was on uh, this tape I had in my room, but it's not. Um, 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 I'm saying a lot of ums right now. I don't know what's up with that. Maybe because I'm pulling this out of my anus once again. So, um, I got some interesting interviews coming up for you guys. I uh, got John Morgan, uh, who was the who's One Way Richmond. Used to be the calendar guy for Punchline. A very interesting conversation this afternoon. And recording one with Mr. Dave Brocky and Cam Denunzio and... Joanne from Lady J Anti-Mag and Herschel Obama Thing Rodriguez. Lots of I'm I'm going all out, man. I'm doing like one every day coming up here. Um I have nothing for you in the way of you know what? Yeah. Listen, I can see on my Google Analytics that like 40 people just one day looked at the donate page. Don't look at it. Do it. Give me some, come on, $20. Like if 30 people give me $20, God, that'd be awesome. I could just get better at this. So you'd have no, you, know, you wouldn't be like, I can't hear him. Or who are these guests? Or, you know, whatever. Like this could really get to be something, you know. I wouldn't have to go back to, you know, driving a forklift. You, do you want that? Do you want me to have to go back over there, hat in hand, to the restaurant depot, and say, oh, my job, please. Um, I failed at my dream, because you know, none of my friends would support me. Um, it's very sad. It's humiliating, really, if you think about it. So, um, for fuck's sake, you know how to use PayPal? 20, 20 bucks. Not that big a deal. Um, no. Well, you know, if you can, you can. If you can't, whatever. I'm going to start uh, hitting... I'm gonna, you're going to have to listen to pe- me do like voiceover stuff in the beginning of the podcast. Chris will just scrub past it. Bunch of dicks. 
I uh, have some people I, I, I want to work with, so maybe I'll talk about them now. Like, I love Lamplighter Roasting Company's great coffee shop. They're awesome. Uh, I like these bicycle shops in Richmond, like Bunny Hop and Rag and Bone and Recycle, who fixed up an old three-speed for me. That's all cool. Bicycles are cool. People who ride bicycles are cool. Not at all self-righteous. At, mm, don't break the law. None. Um, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have anything else to say. That's it. Bye.